Welcome everybody to this, the second of our Rare Book School Summer Lecture Series. My name is Michael Suarez and I'm the director of Rare Book School. For those of you who have spent the day in class, I hope today and indeed yesterday have gone very well. We're really privileged today to have a, a special speaker with us. Noe Arista is Associate Professor of History in the Department of History and Classical Studies and the Chair of Indigenous, the Indigenous Studies Program at McGill University. Professor Arista's areas of interest include Hawaiian religious, legal, and intellectual history, Hawaiian historical methods, and translation. She received her BA and her MA in Hawaiian religion from the Department of Religion at the University of Hawaii. In 2010, she earned her PhD from the Department of History at Brandeis University. For her doctoral work, Professor Arista was awarded the Alan Nevins Prize from the Society of American Historians for the best written doctoral dissertation on a significant subject in American history. Her first book, The Kingdom and the Republic, Sovereign Hawaii and the Early United States, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019, won the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association's Best First Book Award. One reviewer commented, the kingdom and the republic fundamentally changes how we think about Hawaiian, US and British history in this period. While another reviewer opined, Arista's careful attention to the contexts and contingencies of international relations are the book's greatest strength. Her analysis always considers local circumstances, individual personalities, and contemporary events. And this attention to detail makes this an essential book for those studying Hawaiian state formation or the Hawaiian kingdom more generally. It is also an eminently readable work of scholarship as Arista is able to make close textual analysis of Hawaiian language sources highly accessible. We are delighted to have Professor Arista with us this evening. She will address us on the challenge and promise of Hawaiian language textual archives. Please join me, at least in virtually welcoming her. Aloha mai kako, onora nearest ke ia no honolulu mai au, eau i ka aina o kupupuna ma o ahunei. He aloha vale na poe no na ka aina ma UVA. Um, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me today for my talk. Hello, kamo olano. Um, many are the histories or stories, the challenge and promise of Hawaiian language archives. My talk is going to cover several topics. Um, the extent of the Hawaiian language textual archive, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. 
uh, the transmediation of Mo'olelo Hawai'i or the movement of Hawaiian history, historical documents or texts between mediums, oral and textual and now digital. Our teams work with the Hawaiian Evangelical Association papers and finally, how best to organize and create subject heading categories or controlled vocabularies perhaps for indigenous language archives. Throughout the course of the talk, I would ask participants to consider the implications for writing history or any other scholarly engagement with Hawaiian or perhaps indigenous knowledge if libraries and archives were full participants in the project to organize indigenous language sources using indigenous structures of knowledge. What do scholars study? Archives, what's in a name? If you looked up the word archive in the Hawaiian dictionary, you will get the phrase kawaihona palapalakahiko or repository of old documents. Whenever I give a talk or write a paper, I utilize a different name for archive, kawaihona palapalamanaleo or the repos repository of native speaker manuscripts. The intervention allows me to argue that written and published documents also circulated as oral as oral and oral texts, even as words were fixed on paper. This adjustment also invites Kanaka Maoli or Hawaiian people to engage in the desire to continue to learn from their kupuna, from their elders and ancestors in oli, chants, mele, songs, and pule, prayers, that are found in written and published sources. My simple recasting of the archive, not as a pile of written papers composed by various authors, but as the words of native language speakers allows me to suggest in part that archival research and labor with documents and published materials should be treated as part of the continuum that drives native language and knowledge reclamation projects. Such projects, for the most part, focus on reconstituting spoken language communities through the training of fluent speakers, largely through the medium of speech only. Programs emphasize the importance of speaking indigenous languages in the home and family and in public, while the archive in this formulation may be viewed as the venue, perhaps of experts, and is not often integrated into language reclamation programs. This shift in cognizance from simply old documents to those whose antiquity through connection with ancestors allows them to be relational, dissolves part of the animosity directed toward the written word by many who fetishize the mode of dissemination of information orality as superior and more authoritative than that which has been written or published. If bringing attention to the fact that textual materials are expressions and extensions of ancestral knowledge will allow people in my community to feel more at ease with the project of research and archival space, then such a recalibration is necessary for the future of historical scholarship and for indigenous communities thirsting for their mo'olelo histories and stories to flourish anew. This intervention on my part allows me to disrupt particular localized orientations to and expectations of the process of Hawaiian research, namely that in information imparted by living elders is always verifiable, authoritative, and true, whereas the information imparted through writing or print might always sort of be considered as suspect or colonial. My training in Hawaiian knowledge happened in five primary venues. Each avenue was structured according to the teachings of my kumu 
or professors according to their disciplinary backgrounds. First, with Kumuhula Manuha'okalanige, Po Maika'igawi, and John Keola Lake, I learned some of the art of chanting, chant composition in Hawaiian, and the use of Hawaiian language in ceremony and performance. Second, native speaking elders and experts helped us students to practice our speech and taught us customary knowledge specific to their home places, like fishing or farming, for example. Third, at the university where I completed four years of Hawaiian language and courses in translation and chant composition, I received an, a master's degree in Hawaiian religion. And I continued my PhD course of studies in American history at Brandeis University with Jane Kamensky as my Kumu and dissertation advisor. So that was like the academic track. Fourth, on two different three-year research projects with Hawaiian experts in genealogy and traditional knowledge, Auntie Edith McKenzie and Kavena Johnson, who are pictured at the top uh, center and left of your, of your screen. I worked on a newspaper cataloging project and the collection of a chant genre called Kaniko from the 19th century Hawaiian language newspapers. And finally, in fits and starts, I learned from my own family. I marked these differing avenues of education and schools of Hawaiian knowledge and American knowledge to note that in order to acquire the particular skill set I put together required motivation on my part. I found Kumu and elders who were willing to teach me. Some also taught me archival skills and how to work with textual materials to create transcriptions and produce culturally literate translations. These are not pathways built into curriculum or degree programs, but rather opportunities I sought out, which I now try to offer other students seeking to learn on projects like the one I will discuss today. The native speaker documents repository is like a mystery box. Scholars don't know what's in it because it's written in the Hawaiian language. And because of this, it largely remains unprocessed. Maybe it's more like 16 mystery boxes or actually 32 mystery boxes because the Hawaiian language source space is voluminous and allows us to conceptualize beyond models of scarcity, supplying methods and approaches to native language oral to textual sources, methods and approaches which will be exportable to different historical contexts in different languages and geographies. What this suggests is that we should become cognizant of the limitation of imposing prefabricated scarcity, conservation, and sustainability models upon our work and upon our, our conceptualization of source base, models that do not fit our particular context here in Hawaii. Hawaiian language was the primary medium of educational instruction in the islands until 1894, when English was made the only legal language of instruction in Hawaii. However, Hawaiian language newspapers were published in the islands from 1834 to 1948. Over this 114-year span, over 100 Hawaiian language nupepa titles were published. The longest-running Hawaiian language nupepa, Kanupepa Kuokoa, enjoyed a run of 66 years. Kanupepa Kuokoa was patterned after American newspapers and was four pages long, double-sided, and frequently printed with six columns to a page. Its size meant that one paper was the equivalent of 12 standard pages of newspaper print. The Hawaiian language written and published corpus is the largest in any indigenous language in the United States and possibly the Polynesian Pacific. And yet it is still largely underutilized by scholars. This archive 
and others of similar magnitude, Maori in the Maori language, Lakota or Cherokee, dismantle commonplace assumptions that scholars writing native, colonial or imperial or national history have to deal with source scarcity. The handwritten materials and publications in Hawaiian comprised a detailed almost daily accounting of colonial and imperial processes that span the period from colonial settlement to the older overthrow of a native nation. Materials were produced by holiday and Hawaiian writers. People don't realize that. When I say native indigenous language archives, people always assume, well, just native bodies produced um, these archives. But actually there are a lot of Americans who were fluent in Hawaiian because they were missionaries or they were working for the kingdom. Um, these evidentiary sources supply innumerous, innumerable accounts of customary knowledge passed on for generations. Chants, songs, prayers, histories, as well as firsthand accounts of native lives in transition. Because they were written and published by Kanaka Mali writers, intellectuals, men and women, the aged and the young, ali'i government officials and everyday people. The Hawaiian language culture of letters has hardly been studied. The way that newspapers knit together a Hawaiian public sphere, crafted a national consciousness within or through Lahui, completely lacks a secondary scholarly footprint. In other words, the scholars who have written about Hawaii all this time have not utilized Hawaiian language sources to write their histories. It is important to note that our construction of oral tradition within the Polynesian Pacific and the pedagogies and disciplines which oral intellectuals were subject to in our culture are quite elaborate and differ from modern day ideas about that knowledge is information informally shared by word of mouth, sort of oral tradition informally shared. Elsewhere, I have written about the difference between Euro-American valorizations of primary source eyewitness accounts and the importance which Hawaiians placed upon the veracity of ear witnessed accounts. So if you look at the screen that I have here, this might be a typical paper, right? Six columns, here is a column of advertisements. Um, here's a chant. So as I uh, mentioned, the oral in the written. Here is a, a uh, like a folk tale or story, a ka'au. And inset in the ka'au, and this is typical, is a prose telling of a story, but also the expression of the characters uh, as they're chanting um, along their journey. And here we have um, foreign history, a uh, history of Africa. So you can see how sort of really um, rich and diverse the materials that appear in Hawaiian language uh, newspapers. Um, currently, this is uh, very quickly, I'm currently working on ways that we can utilize technology to break the orality literary liter literacy cycle by using different kinds of machine learning processes to place sources within reach of those training speakers, chanters, and composers of chant, prayer, and song. Source materials can reach creative developers who work in gaming, VR, and AR, and even the compilation of expanded dictionaries can happen. That's like one of my dreams. Um, you can ask me in Q&A about that project. Um, and here again is a section of the story from Hiaka Ika Polio Pele. Um, in 2018, I worked as a knowledge keeper on a video game project put together by the Concordia University-based Initiative for Indigenous Futures and Hawaiian Kanai Kana, and described to a team of developers what it must have been like to read a chant in the Hawaiian language newspaper in the 19th century. 
The cinematic gave gamers a feeling for literacy as informed by those trained in orality who believed in the power of the chanted prayers. The chanter you, you are about to hear is Hina Le Moana Wong. Oops, sorry. เออหูรันฮะโกอีเกาไมลาฮิลุนาเอหูฮาวะไมลาฮาวะคุมไมลาฮาดูฮาริโกไมลาริโกอะลาวไมลาลาลาอะคุมไมลาฮาดูอะล
Experts were trained who were tasked with remembering and presenting Hawaiian knowledge, a topic I have written about on a number of occasions. The transmediation of Hawaiian mo'olelo, in other words, has been going on for a long time. Missionaries introduced the printing press together with chief, chiefs supporting reading and writing in Hawaiian um, was introduced to the general population in newly formed schools. What this means is that much of our literature, histories, stories have been written down or published. New technologies such as AR, VR, and gaming mean that mo'olelo can move again from print and writing while audio and immersive experiences can be harnessed to teach and transmit Hawaiian knowledges in ways that resemble original modes of keeping and passing on Ike Hawaii. It seems perhaps we have come full circle. So this image by um, Ahukini Romero, one of my artist friends called Mo'olelo. Mo'o means succession. Olelo means speech acts. So the way that speech acts are appended one to another uh, make Mo'olelo. So the passing on of oral tradition, you can see the chanters, words moving through the printing press into wax cylinders, through typewriters, onto computers, and back to the microphone of Larry Kimura, who in the 80s and 90s interviewed a lot of native speakers and got them on tape. Now, with immersive um, VR, AR gaming, a relational sort of technologies, we can bring back this process of teaching our children or future generations through those modes that we are, or modalities that we are comfortable with, performance, hearing, um, memorization, um, those kinds of things. I wanted to touch briefly on one of the projects that prepared me for the work that I continue to do today. I was hired to work on the newspaper indexing and cataloging project headed by Edith McKenzie, a team that included native speaking elders, other graduate students, and Hawaiian language professors to systematically catalog and summarize individual articles in issues of Hawaiian language newspapers. These catalogs were then going to be made available to researchers who were not fluent in Hawaiian through the Bishop Museum. This occurred at a time, this project, when we were writing our summaries by hand before laptop computers and digital dictionaries were widely available. If I came across a word that was not in any dictionary in an article, um, we would discuss the passages with the native speakers who were present, and then we would annotate our personal dictionaries by hand on the spot. Making the decision to categorize a piece of writing or composition in, in a particular subject to summarize the Hawaiian articles and essays in English required the skill to move fluidly between Hawaiian and English, a skill that will aid me greatly in the next phase of our project to create subject heading categories and controlled vocabularies for our um, paper collection in the Hawaiian language. The ATA papers are located at the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society Library in Honolulu. The ATA is the predecessor to what is now known as the Hawaii Conference of United Church of Christ. A current grant received from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, IMLS, allows the library to work on organizing, transcribing, and digitizing the HEA name files. The collection consists of over a thousand letter folders organized by last name. Many of those letters are written by Hawaiian pastors, Hawaiian church members to the HEA, describing the state of their churches, relations with their parishioners and communities, and requesting building supplies and books and payment along with other necessities. 
Many of the letters have more extensive information, which will be revealed as we get deeper into transcribing and organizing the vast collection. I wrote a transcription handbook to train student transcribers on our project who worked, uh, who worked on the project in fall of 2020. A large part of the project is dedicated to training transcribers and editing their transcriptions. Transcribed letters are of course easier to read than handwriting. Um, one of the things that I always meet when I go to the archives is archivists running over to me to complain that the people over there at that table can't read the handwriting. <laughs> so we're trying to help our community by transcribing these materials and then rendering them into a format that is word searchable on our website. As transcriptions are produced and added to the site, people will be able to do keyword searches in the letters as well. Presently, our searches are only limited to the names of the letter writers themselves. The scope of our project, the letters run from 1820 to 1950. In all, there are about 1170 individual writers and their letters are appear in 1300 folders. So far, we've processed about uh, 1,200 of the letters, 396 folders. 80% of the folders we've noticed are written in the Hawaiian language, 20% in, in the English language. The objective of our, of our project is to transcribe all the letters in the collection to render the text searchable. The project is people-centered, however. Trained transcribers, graduate, undergraduate, high school students, church, and community members. In other words, the papers, the papers are not themselves the only focus of our project. We are deciding to um, search for Hawaiian language fluent transcribers, but we also employ those who are not fluent in Hawaiian language just yet. Here, the divide between patron and user um, that people are used to in an archive is less useful. We hope some of my graduate students can't help themselves. They start researching the biographies of the individual writers. So some of them want to write biographies, short little biographies of the writers to increase accessibility to Kanakamali writers. We want to increase the visibility of intellectual and spiritual production of Hawaiian writers from the past and into our present. We want to create a finding aid in Hawaiian language and in English language and create subject heading categories in the Hawaiian language. This sounds like a monumental feat and it is. It's a bit daunting to think about, but if you consider the fact that the, write, the letters themselves are written in the Hawaiian language, it may follow therefore that a finding aid in Hawaiian is not too far-fetched. Um, I've been in archives where, you know, the finding aid for an English section of a, of a, of a collection, the same letter collection, by, mind you, is over 300 pages long and the eight boxes in Hawaiian are not cataloged at all and I received two pages of cataloging. And those are moments that you just sort of want to scream because you see that only one kind of community is being served and the letters are basically still sort of languishing in this dark. For us, sources are not just evidence. Viewing the collection through the eyes of descendants, community and church members, um, viewing manuscripts not just as source material, but as revelatory of language use, cultural, intellectual, spiritual, and historical documents for ongoing indigenization and education. Sources are entry points of connection and relation for some people. And because colonialism has impacted our ability to read and interpret text, transcription and reading are necessary um, sort of endeavors for some of my graduate students to help train them in to, to like strengthen their language skill 
um, especially contextually in this time period in, in sort of Christian, Hawaiian Christian communities, for example. We may not be willing to cede these acts of reclamation to machine learning, although it's starting to look like if we don't, that's gonna be a huge project. So we're considering it. Because we are at the stage of developing and training the people who can read enormous amounts of text, organize it and interpret it in order to intervene in a colonial historiography that has erased the existence of the archive that is also one of our objectives. Here, the relationship between the two Akuaki'i, the two God figures in the image by designer, Hawaiian designer Joshua Evie Lake, allows us to imagine the challenges of intervening in a colonial historiographic narrative of Christianity and its relation to the Hawaiian religious past, often characterized as a harsh binary of us versus them. Hawaiian Christian archives have not been prioritized because they are viewed by many as inherently tainted or colonized sources. But as we have pointed out, the majority of the writers in this collection are Hawaiian and they are writing in the Hawaiian language. Letters that few have read, interrogated or interpolated into the writing of Hawaiian history or histories, United States histories. The project therefore seeks not only to make the materials more widely available to the public, but also to show that the papers housed in the Mission Houses Museum archives are written by Hawaiian people in the Hawaiian language, marking these repositories as holding significant knowledge for the enrichment of Hawaiian and Hawaii's history that has been lost underneath the very real animus that abides towards missionization, Christianization, and the Sandwich Islands missionaries. We are not apologists for any side of history. Rather, the project team is made up of an all Hawaiian team of archivists, scholars, project manager, and transcribers. And we hope that these efforts will enable and invite connections to Hawaiian language students, teachers, churches, and members of the community who wish to learn more from these documents and the process of indigenizing and decolonizing the organization of archives and the writing and reclamation of Hawaiian language and history. And we are aware as more, more calls are raised for justice in regards to missionization and boarding schools, that um, this work is both needed and very delicate. That brings us to my project team. Ethical practices arise from relationships. Our project places indigenous knowledge and epistemologies at the center of its work. It also attempts to respectfully approach the writers who wrote the documents and recognizes the place in people who continue to hold these documents in their care, the actual archive. We are motivated by the conviction that the work we do is relational, dependent upon the maintenance of proper conduct and behavior. This ethos includes care for the place we work for, for ourselves, for members of our project team, and the ike or knowledge that is held within the documents that we engage with. Ethical standards which we apply to our praxis are at times dictated by the nature of the sources themselves. In Hawaiian, for example, particular chat genres, prayers, and genealogy require or might require a modification of our behavior, how we create access, and whether or not certain kinds of information should be shared widely or restricted. We already had an initial meeting with some ministers and heads of churches, um, Hawaiian churches, and they were concerned with some of the delicate information that would be revealed in the letters. 
um, expulsions from church, for example, and the reasons why, and that certain family members might not want that information being made public. So we recognize that as we go deeper into this collection and more materials are brought off online, that certain you know people in our community may sort of question you know the sovereignty of the archive to do that and we will we will have discussions then uh, with people from the community and probably bring mediators in from the churches our project team is organized by two hawaiian archivists and records management consultants kanani rapoon and carol silva here on the left in the blue and the brown shirts um who between them have 40 years of work in indigenous librarianship between them um, Kanani is a consultant working on the project, and she's actually the former head of the Hawaiian Mission Houses Library, and she actually trained me in archival research when I was just a, a first-year graduate student, telling me, no, I can't do this, no, I can't do that, no, pens aren't allowed, no, don't touch papers that way. She really inaugurated my um, relationship with the archive, and Carol was a managing archives at archivist at the Hawaii State Archives, and she also teaches Hawaiian language classes in the community, and she's done that for decades. So we were super lucky to, to get these two ladies out of retirement to come work on this project. And as far as I'm concerned, they're sort of my bosses. Um, they prepare the files uh, for transcription. They check the files against the digital files to make sure everything's in line and in order. They create metadata, they hand off spreadsheets so we know what's in each folder and we can get to work. Kelsey Carson, the third image, uh, the third person image there is the only non-Mali member of the team and she's the awesome new curator of the archives and librarian there. Uh, she just got hired in, in May. So we, we are a lot for her to handle. Um, the rest of the folks pictured here, uh, the four next four people are, um, my transcribers and editorial team, um, they are all um, Hawaiian language fluent, except for Maliola, who's um, in the black there. He's been working with me on transcription projects for several years. Um, Lisa Chow there at the end with the lay on. she is the exec team head. Uh, who is Hawaiian of the executive team of the mission houses and if it were not for her. Uh, work, the emotional labor involved in trying to like get the institution to try to recalibrate itself to imagine itself as not just serving descendants or sort of burnishing the legacy of the missionaries, um, but to sort of invite Hawaiian community in. We have a lot of growing pains and we've got a lot more growing to, to do, but we're dedicated sort of to working together. And if it wasn't for Lisa, um, I don't think this project would be would be going forward. So that's my awesome project team. Um, let's get to the letters though, like the stuff, like when we consider the authors whose relationships were recorded in these letters, you say mission houses to people and they're like, oh, missionaries. But, you know, we have a particular idea of what, who the authors are. They're, they're missionaries or descendants at, or their holiday context in the church. And while many of these in individuals are indeed represented in our papers, um, the majority of the writers in the collection are Hawaiian. In this slide put together by um, our project manager, Amy Malie Mulligan, um, we're focusing on this letter from 1853, which was a lot of fun. The letter added to a host of others broaden our idea or understanding of what compromise, what comprised mission space by focusing on West Maui here uh, circled in the in on the map 
beyond the places more prominently discussed by scholars, which are the mission stations where the missionaries were based in Honolulu, Hilo, Lahaina, and Wailuku. We don't focus on these other spaces um, where, where churches are. This letter composed, and I love this, by Nakanaka Apao Kahakuloane, all of the residents of Kahakuloa to Dr. Baldwin in 1853. The area of Kahakuloa, yeah, the residents here, and I love it, they share their criticism of Dr. Baldwin for sending a Dr. Dao to attend to the medical needs of this community. They're really used to Dr. Baldwin, um, to Dr. Baldwin, they liked him. And um, the bone they had to pick with him was that they, he sent a missionary doctor who couldn't speak any Hawaiian. So the word that they use is we, we, we strongly criticize you for sending this gentleman um, and on the grounds that he can't speak Hawaiian. They asked Dr. Baldwin instead to come himself to tend to the sickness of the people. As the excerpt from the first annual meeting of the HEA in 1854 shows in, the, in that newspaper print there, the Lahaina Station report notes that the visitation of the smallpox over the islands in 1854 or 1853, most of the people of Maui escaped through vaccination or from isolation, sounds familiar. They were on the island, 125 deaths, most of them in Lahaina, nine deaths, seven of them landed from abroad. This paragraph then highlights a critical time in Hawaiian history the smallpox epidemic of 1853 to 1854, and is one action among others that the community of Kahakuloa took to ensure their health amidst the crisis. Language was central to the health of the community. They wanted someone who could answer their questions about disease and healing, something which Dr. Dao couldn't do for them. Now, the letter that was interesting to me in, in the thematic subject that, that is always jumping out to me is this letter is, is an example by this, this letter from Reverend Theodore Gulick to Reverend um, Olson in March 1889. Gulick here is providing advice to Olson, who is advising another missionary on how to acquire fluency in the Hawaiian language. This is one of the subjects that you know I'm naturally drawn to in the papers, the topic of the acquisition and importance of Hawaiian language to the mission. Most people imagine missionaries to be the arbiter of all things, but the last, as the last letter illustrated how Hawaiian people viewed missionary intelligence based on a person's fluency in Hawaiian language. Here, the missionary provides sound advice, live immersed in language and write phrases and idioms heard from the mouths of the people and commit them to memory and usage as soon as he was able. What also struck me as sort of fascinating was 69 years had elapsed since the planting of the mission and Hawaiian language is still the medium of instruction of the missionaries. In other words, they have to learn Hawaiian themselves and it is what is responsible for any success that the missionary project has in moving forward. What fascinates me is a potential subject heading from the last slide, Hawaiian language broadly may have many other headings attached to it. The acquisition of Hawaiian knowledge, the translation of the Bible, the compilation of lexicons and dictionaries, the people that the missionary was worked with and dependent upon to lead them through those processes, standardizing orthography. All of these topics will require our attention to create a subject heading strategy in the Hawaiian language up from these sources themselves. In this slide, 
um, is the Getty Thesaurus of Geographic Names, the entry for Nuuanu Valley. The TNG is a structured vocabulary, including names, descriptions, and other metadata for extant and historical cities, empires, archaeological sites, and physical features important to research in art and architecture. For me, this is a typical record displaying the way Nuu Valley, Nuuanu Valley is seen and organized in a Western geographical context. Nuuanu here is a valley located on the island of Oahu in the city of Honolulu, in the state of Hawaii. In the United States, located in North and Central America, in the world. If, however, we located Nu'uwanu geographically in a Hawaiian mode of organization here on this map, we would say that Nu'uwanu is a valley in the Moku, this broad district here of Kona, and the Ahupua'a of Honolulu, on the island of Oahu, in the Moana Nuiakea or the Pacific Ocean, not on a continent. And whether or not it's located in the US is dependent upon the date of the artifact. I live in urban Hawaii, Hawaii sorry. Uh, people are crazy outside. Uh, whether or not this is located within US chronological time depends on the date of the manuscript. It's not a given that everything in Hawaii belongs under the rubric US. The work of writing subject headings is not a translation project. In other words, we're not taking, you know, a um, Library of Congress subject headings and just sort of translating them into Hawaiian. It relies on transcribers and editors tracking topics across the collection of manuscripts and seeing what rises to the level of subject. We envision, envision subject areas that center on Hawaiian Christianity, spirituality, the church, but also on the lively book trade that grew as the churches themselves expanded. In short, envisioning the lives of Hawaiian ministers, parishioners, writers, and composers as history makers in ways that have been up to this point constrained by English language writings about Hawaiian people, but not produced by them in their native tongue. The work that we envision will require collaboration between project team members, archivists and librarians who are both fluent and not fluent in, in language with descendants of missionaries and ministers and church members, language and cultural experts and with students and Kumu enrolled in language project programs and immersion schools. For our subject heading project, we'll be partnering with librarians already working on this topic like Siobhan Matsuda at Maui Community College who has begun the process of creating subject heading categories in the Hawaiian language for Hawaiian language materials in the University of Hawaii library system. Other indigenous language subject heading projects are also underway and serve as a guide, like the Maori project Na'upohu Tukutuku, which is supported actually by the National Library in Aotearoa. And it seeks to create a tool that quote, provides a structured path to a Maori worldview within library and archival cataloging and descriptions, um, unquote. Those other projects, however, have relied heavily upon input from elders and native language speakers, whereas the Hawaii-based projects, where we have a dwindling number of, of elder, you know, kupuna um, first language speakers, um, make that avenue not so viable. So what I'm trying to encourage my team and other scholars around me to imagine 
as the archive is ancestor. We believe that the creation of subject headings to organize collections is long overdue, as many Hawaiian language manuscripts collections remain simply uncatalogued because most of the archivists and head of archives are not fluent in Hawaiian, making these sources largely inaccessible. We hope that the creation of metadata, subject headings, and finding aids in Hawaiian language will give new generations of speakers and readers also a place to grow into, a place to utilize their language skill as researchers, knowledge keepers, writers, scholars, and community experts. Again, we're thinking of building this for the futurity of Hawaiian language speakers that are, are probably yet to be born, right? So I might sort of skip through this very quickly. Um, the challenge of this huge archive is that it's just one of like hundreds of huge parts of our Hawaiian language archive. I worked in the Judd collection with my students about five years ago when they opened it to the public for the first time after the last descendant passed away and none of the Hawaiian language portions of that those papers were, were cataloged. In fact, what the family members had done over the course of a century was to strip all of the Hawaiian language material out of the chronology of the and, and separate the English from the Hawaiian, which created a crazy thing. If you're an archivist, you probably like want to tear your hair out when you hear that. And so some of the um, work that my students did was to sort of catalog a, a folder each, right? So there are a few opportunities for us to train machine learning in indigenous languages. Um, and what I get from most other tribes that I work with is we don't have enough material to, to sort of mount that kind of project. So looking using the Hawaiian language corpus, we're trying to, to devise approaches that, that fit diverse language communities. So with me going to McGill, I am looking at my colleagues who speak Kunget, Ganyangeha, Cree, Inuktuk, Anishinaabe Moan, languages where the emphasis is largely there on creating robust oral archives or processing oral content in communities where they imagine that the textual archives are scarce, but I'm not sure that people have really sort of looked through all of the materials that may be in language and aggregated them in one place. Uh, locating funding for projects based in indigenous communities is very difficult, so partnerships are needed. Computational approaches need to be formulated with linguistic and cultural fluency built in. In my case, this has meant me working with indigenous data scientists from Cree, you know, Crow and Northern Cheyenne and Maori, um, even if they don't speak my language, they speak computer. Um, projects must proceed in relation with knowledgeable people from indigenous communities. And of course, the problem with Hawaiian historiography and the way that we approach the writing of history is that the archives is still loading. So, um, what's the promise of the Hawaiian language textual archive? It's more history for our children and the generations to come. It is the promise of a history of the Lahui or Hawaiian people in their own words and ways of expressing themselves through chant, performance, song, prayer, and prose. And it is not a bifurcated history. It is not a binary history. It is a history that has to be worked in with you know, the coming of foreigners, foreign settlement, the overthrow of the nation. All of these things need to be intertwined. So I'm not advocating for sort of an us-them kind of binary history, right? And these are some of the titles written by people who are fluent in Hawaiian or very culturally literate and who work with Hawaiian people on the ground to help them with sources. To wrap up, um, while written histories may supply the broad historical dimensions 
of Hawaiian history of the Ahui Oyanyalio Hawaii or the Hawaiian Evangelical Association, which oversaw the activities of all affiliated Congregationalist churches in the Hawaiian Islands, as well as Hawaii based mission efforts in the Pacific between 1853 and 1959, the HEA page papers project to digitize, transcribe, and enrich the cataloging of the name files collection will supply scholars, historians, genealogists, and descendants with valuable information on the everyday lives and labor of Hawaiian ministers, their families, and congregations, providing deeper currents of mid-19th to early 20th century history, which have largely been left out of histories of the period. So, Reflecting on the HEA's mission to develop a native Hawaiian-led pastorate supported by Hawaiian congregations, the vast majority of the letters in this name file collection are written in Hawaiian language. The communications are filed by each correspondent's last name, giving both the collection and the project its name. Studied together, the letters highlight the contours of social networks through which this information flowed. Letters circulated between HEA churches across the Hawaiian archipelago, to HEA Pacific missions in Micronesia, the Marquesas, and Pompeii, to congregational churches throughout the continental United States, and from HEA members and their colleagues on their global travels. The letters demonstrate that HEA membership and HEA affiliates extended across the United States, while home mission efforts sought to bring the gospel message to immigrant laborers, Chinese, Portuguese, Filipino, Russian, and Japanese communities in Hawaii. And here I kind of show in the image some of the Hawaiian ministers, James Kekela and Reverend Alice Kahokuoluna, who was the first woman ordained by the HEA. And she had her church in um, the leprosy settlement the, at um, Kalawao, at Kalaupapa. Hawaiian people may choose to look at these papers through different lenses. They may be interested in genealogy research, ancestral knowledge, Mele or song composition, while scholars could start writing the history of Hawaiian churches, print culture, the book trade, Hawaiian intellectual history, all of these things that I've listed on the right. Um, to close, we are always looking for volunteers, so people who can lend any of their expertise, whether it's on a subject heading category sort of level or sort of transcription from afar, if you would like to contribute any funds or any of your expertise to the project, you can reach out to the um, archives at hawaiianmissionhouses.org for more information. And thank you very much for um, inviting me to talk about uh, my work and this project. And these are all the people that support us and this is how you can get in touch with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Noe, what a fantastic talk. Um, so many crucial issues raised um, that have such an importance for us right now as we think about our cultural heritage institutions, our communities, who is served, who isn't served right now. Um, I love that phrase, ear witnesses, and how you're bringing our attention to assumptions about books and about knowledge um, and what, what knowledge really is, right? And about these crucial oral and oral components um, that you've so um, uh, just helpfully drawn our attention to and how they 
how they interrelate with these printed sources, a very complex and rich history. And we have, um, I'm pleased to say, many, many questions for you in the chat so that we can have a very robust um, Q&A session. So I'm going to just kick it off. Um, we have a question from Amy Gore uh, in the chat who begins by thanking you for your talk. And Amy says she's interested in the poignant comment that you made about avoiding the extractive model of internet relationships. And Amy wonders, how might we also avoid the increased surveillance of the digital age, which has historically been used against indigenous peoples? Yeah, that's one that we're sort of battling on multiple fronts, like, um, what is proprietary knowledge that we can't share beyond our community? I think that the, that the fact that I'm working with manuscripts that have always been available and nobody's sort of raised uh, sort of concerns about that means that they're okay. But then, you know, like I said, when we met with ministers and they really had a hard thought about what we were doing, they were like, uh, wait a minute. Um, so we will have questions on that front. Um, as far as sort of data sovereignty and security. I look to my Maori colleagues who are way ahead of me and already fighting those battles um, with large techno technology corporations. Um, Tehiku Media, um, Keoni Mahelona and Peter Lucas are sort of at the forefront of that fight because they have created a repository of spoken Maori in order to train a data set um, so that they, they, they created an algorithm that when it Here's spoken Maori, it automatically creates written text simultaneously, right? So they're fighting to keep large tech companies from poaching that data. And one of the ways that they do that is that they are very vocal and very public on Twitter and other platforms to draw attention to the community's um, sort of fight with these large corporations. And the other way is um, more recently, I've been asked to sort of give talks at some of these corporations, and I and I and I talk about cultural appropriation. I talk about the so data sovereignty, and I talk about harm mitigation, and how and I and I enumerate the harms that will occur um, uh, to our communities and perhaps to them um, if they continue to act inappropriately. Like, you know, um, my Maori friends say, have a saying, there is no with us without us. And I hope you can hear how that sounded. <laughs> like there's, um, so that's one of the guiding principles that I'm sort of using. Even as I go to a place like McGill, I've already had this discussion. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Um, we have another question. Um, this one is from Julia Lillinoy Morris King, um, who sends you greeting. Um, hello, Noi Loy, for this talk. Um, she grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, and is a McGill graduate, so was especially thrilled um, to learn from you. And um, her question is about Pitkin, and she wonders whether there's an overlap of Pitkin material. And if so, how you work with it? Oh my gosh, okay, Pigeon. Um, I'm actually working with our, our Zamora Lindmark right now on a Pigeon anthology. And um, wow, I kind of want to, 
I was on Maui and I heard a bunch of it and some of it's kind of inappropriate. So maybe you should just email me later and I'll talk to you about it. But um, we have not seen any of that in the collection yet. But if we do see it, we're going to stick it in that other pocket and and put it. That's what I'm saying. Like that newspaper project that they trained me on made me a natural sort of aggregator. And if you read about my work on David Malo and the translation of the book of Matthew with uh, Reverend William Richards, they talk about going back and forth, translating passages from the Bible. And Richards will say, well, I don't know this word. Like elaborate. And Malo will, will, will sort of give him a line from a chant, give him a line from a history, give with the same word and then run the lines. But you know, he is the archive. So it's that methodology of sort of being able to keyword search usages in texts that we couldn't do 20 years ago when I was just a graduate student. And now we have so much digitized newspaper material that it's absolutely possible to aggregate, you know, all the clean newspapers that can be read by the machine, aggregate the usage of words and see the drift and change over time. Um, so I think that, you know, we might see some of that pigeon in there if we look at some of these missionaries who are struggling with their, you know, in between with their language. That's a great question, but I'm always like, siphoning that material off to Zamora Lindmark, who's the Filipino novelist uh, who's working on that project. Thank you. Thanks, Noi. Uh, we have another question from Marsha Watt. This one, um, in this question, Marsha says, I assume there is now a standard, and she puts that in quotes, form of written Hawaiian. Are there, were there different dialects on the different islands? See? That's why I'm, that's, this is, this is a great question because this is the archive to learn about that. This is one of the major archives to learn about that process. We have not produced any scholars who are currently working on these kinds of issues because so many people imagine that the missionary archive is anathema, that they, you know, we're not going to go near them. You know, they don't even want to go near. I was yelled at by somebody two weeks ago who said, why would we go near that archive? And I said, well, there are all these writers in there. Why I say that this is the archive to consider that question is because through the process of them standardizing, you're gonna see a lot of the material they aggregated on different islands, right? And there are moments, honestly, where you know you hear this all the time, Hawaiians were the most literate people west of the Rockies by 1840, right? You hear this all the time in the historiography. And then I'm reading some of the writing from the 50s and 60s and I'm like, did this guy not get thorough training in written Hawaiian, right? Like things are falling out, the sentences are missing connectors. And so, you know, you, you, then you gotta read the whole sort of file and go, okay, is this con consistent? Is this, is this his, you know, is this the way he writes? He or she writes. And so there are very real questions about the progress of literacy, the progress of writing, being taught how to write in your language versus being being fluent in speech, right? And that the two may be separable. We don't, we don't, we don't really dwell on that among ourselves right now, but it's actually, it's actually a thing, right? So in my own training with native speakers, absolutely, yes, there are dialects and absolutely, yes, there are different sorts of ways that people use words. Certain people, they don't use that set of words. They use another word. And um, 
sometimes when we disagree about words and we're building a dictionary for an app or something, like on our um, indigenous protocols, artificial intelligence project, we did that. We crowdsource usage on, on Facebook really informally. And we got a we got our own real-time breakdown that people from, from Maui this way used a certain word and people from Oahu to Kauai used another word. And then we figured that if we were built to build the app for real, we would pin drop the usage and allow the app would allow us to keep the differences in real time where a dictionary kind of doesn't do that for you. You have to kind of know already, right? So that's what I'm saying about like the way that we use technology, the possibilities for technology, like I'm already ready to go over there and I'm still like checking transcriptions, <laughs> you know, like, um, cause I'm one of the editors. Great question. Thank you. We have many more. Um, we have a question from Beverly, um, and Beverly asks, have there been translations by Hawaiians which have a Christian bent as they were strong Christians? Um, also, Beverly asks, I've heard about newspaper translations that had parts that may not have been, and he, she puts in quotes, PC, um, and omitted when translated. Could you speak to those issues? So, um, what was the first part of the question? Um, question. Oh yeah, Christian, Christianity. Absolutely, okay. you can go look at my work on David Malo. I just published um, a short, a longer biography of him um, in the reprint of Kamo Olelo Hawaii Volume Two. So he's the first Hawaiian Christian minister that's ordained in 1853, and his work is strongly Christian inflected. But as I point out, because he was trying under Kapu as a Hawaiian intellectual, as a genealogist, there are ways to read along the Hawaiian grain while still reading the Christianity, right? And it's that sort of nuance and complexity that people sort of have no patience for today. They want, is he Hawaiian or is he Christian? And I'm like, yeah, the answer is both. Um, and, and, you know, you have to be careful how you have that conversation. And secondly, yes, absolutely. Um, in when Mary Kavana Pukui was translating some of her her translations, she would do that. She would leave stuff out, um, and some of that was at the behest of the ethnographers who were telling her, "Forget all the detail, just give me the stuff." Um, but some of it was because some of the translators were Christian and they didn't feel comfortable translating all of that, and that's easily, you know, we can remedy that by like just translating it, um, but. We don't have enough people to do the translations. No, we're very cognizant that even though our project is, is hewing close to Hawaiian language, that 90% of our population still doesn't speak Hawaiian. So, so, so we have an issue there. But, but, but the first thing is we need more people who can do this. And to do translations, you have to be excellent in Hawaiian and English. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, and again, we, we I think the Q&A could continue on and on. We have many questions, but it is 635 and I'm, I'm mindful that um, it's time for us to move to the reception. So I'm hoping, um, and my colleagues are hoping that um, Christina, Louise, um, the others who might have questions and wanna speak with Noi will um, move to Gathertown so we can continue the conversation. Um, and we can also ensure um, I, I'm sure that we can we can share these questions with Noi too. If for, for some reason you are not able to join in Gather Town, but we do want to 
connect you and make sure you have time for conversation. So there is a link um, that we have here in the chat um, so that we can continue our conversation. But before we do that, I do want to um, applaud Noe for her incredible talk. Um, this is so important and so timely and just really, I would say, very important for Rare Book School um, to feature and to know about because um, as, as Noe's pointing out, the history of the book and print culture is so much more. Um, and I think she's given us a real sense of the ways um, that she's making a difference and her community is making a difference and that we can help contribute um, in, in, in making that possible in our own ways too. So thank you. Noi for this wonderful talk. Um, I applaud you and look forward to speaking to you in the Mahalo. Mahalo no kahere ana mai a hai i kela wai i kela lumi. Mahalo be mai na he mau ni na koe. Yeah. Aloha. See you in the next room. Thank you everybody.